Blog Talk Radio. Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Batman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. What's cracking? Darren McDuffie here, alias the Fat Man, helping you become perfectly healthy and toned. Welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. We are back for another exciting episode. We will have uh, Dina Rose on in a few with her book, It's Not About the Broccoli, talking about kids eating habits. If you haven't had a chance and you're listening to the show, go back and look. Uh, listen to last week's show. We had the uh, coconut ketogenic diet with Dr. Bruce Fife on there. So we were learning a lot about how to use coconut oil to get dietary benefits. A lot of people are still discovering the uh, coconut oil. Matter of fact, I had someone contact me from London, England, who wants to use some videos that I posted on coconut oil about two, four years ago. It's some type of survival show, and I was really excited about that. So I'm waiting on her to send me the release so they can use my videos on the show. So um, again, about coconut oil. Um few more announcements. What else do we have here? Super Bowl. Super Bowl was last night. My team wasn't in it. I'm a big Steelers fan, Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and obviously they were not in it, but I was kind of heartbroken for Cam Newton, who who lost uh, Carolina Panthers. I'm from South Carolina, but I had to go for the Carolina Panthers just because uh, Carolina Panthers and Cam Newton. So I went for them, and they did not pull it out, but congratulations to the Denver uh, Broncos. A lot of exciting shows that we have coming up um, in the next few weeks. Tonight, I'm really excited about this show because I am really looking forward to uh, speaking with Dina about kids. I, I think that a lot of our eating habits start at home, and we can start to educate our kids a little bit more when we're with, when it comes to food. Then we'll have a fighting chance because it seems as though more and more people are suffering from obesity. More and more people are not really knowing how to eat to get more health, get longevity, get vitality. So really excited about this show. Um, then Wednesday's Wednesday show this week will be with Reed Davis, who is a functional di- who's a functional diagnostic nutritionist. And Reed actually founded that program. So I'll be talking to him tomorrow, uh, Wednesday rather, more about hormones, different types of things. And uh, we'll be going over everything from A to Z when it comes to the body. And then Monday of next week, I'll actually be talking with Julia Cannon, who um, wrote a book called Soul Speak. And it's all about the things or the aches and pains that our body gives us and what they actually mean. So that's an exciting show as well. Just want to remind you that if you have not connected with me, please connect with me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is thefat underscore man. And then on Facebook, I've actually changed the Facebook. Facebook used to be Facebook slash I'm the Fat Man. Now it's Facebook slash Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. So Facebook slash Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. Make sure that you connect with me on there. So I think that's everything for the announcements. And let me read uh, Dina's uh, bio here. Dina Rose, PhD, is the author of the book, It's Not About the Broccoli, Three Habits to Teach Your Kids, for a lifetime of healthy eating, as well as the popular blog, It's Not About Nutrition. For parents who want to feed their kids right, Dina leverages a unique combination of expertise as a sociologist and mother to help parents solve their kids' eating problems by focusing on the root of the root of the problem eating habits, not nutrition. Dina has a doctorate in sociology from Duke University and more than 15 years' experience in teaching and research. After her mother's premature death from obesity-related illnesses at the age of 65, Dina knew she wanted to give her daughter a better and happier food life. Now she makes helping parents solve their kids' eating problems her life's work. Most parents know what their children should eat but have trouble putting this knowledge into practice. Dina offers parents the relief they need, practical research-based strategies so they can stop struggling and start succeeding. And her website is is it's not about nutrition.com. Dina Rose, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. Hi Darren, I'm so pleased to be here with you tonight. 
Thank you for coming on. I won't hold it against you, Dina, that you um, went to Duke University. I'm a big-time UNC Tar Heel fan. (laughs) (laughs) I won't hold it against you. Well, I'm glad you'll give me that pass. Yeah, I actually played basketball, and one of my dreams was to go to UNC, which I didn't do. I actually went to USC and Uh uh, played basketball. But I'm still a Tar Heels fan to this day, and I absolutely do not like Duke. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if it'll be any comfort to you to hear that I knew nothing, nothing about about basketball or anything about Duke before I ended up as a graduate student there. And my first day as a teaching assistant in a sociology class, when all these tall guys walked into the class, all I thought was, wow, those guys are tall. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually six, seven myself. You actually look tall. It's like on your videos. I was looking at one of your YouTube videos. I'm like, she looks, she looks tall. So um, I am. I'm very, I'm five foot ten, which is not that tall, but for a woman, it's pretty tall. Yeah, my mom was actually five foot ten, so I knew when I looked at you on the video, I was like, "She looks like she's tall, like not <laughs> outrageously tall, but you look like you were probably my mom's size." My mom was five ten. That's right, but I but and I played basketball once or twice in gym in school, and I was awful at it. So there you go. No, well, we try, you know. Um, I'm actually really excited to have you on because I've been looking at your website for like two years. I saved it in my bookmarks, and then one day. I think it was like maybe a month ago, and I was like, I'm just going to reach out to her, and she she answers my email and and would like to come on because I'm really big on children. And like I said before the show started, I think that a lot of our eating habits start with our kids, and I know that a lot of adults take their, um, their eating habits away from their families, and they take a lot of eating habits they started as kids into adulthood. So I'm really excited to um, have you on. Um. The book was good. I actually finished the book up earlier today. And um, just getting into the beginning of the book, I noticed that you shared the story that your mom passed away from um, obesity, which I was uh, sorry to hear that. But talk a little bit of how that affected you and were you, I don't want to say paranoid, but that seems like the word, were you a bit paranoid when it came to (laughs) Your child, you have a daughter, and it came to yep. your child. Like, oh, my God, my mom passed away from, you know, having bad eating yeah. habits. How am I going to uh, give my daughter a better chance? Well, exactly. I mean, I wouldn't use the word paranoid, but definitely my radar was on because I was pregnant with my daughter when my mother died. And so it was really, you know, it was just a few months later that I gave birth to this little girl, and... I just knew that I had to figure out how I was going to make sure that she had a happier food life. And it's interesting because to me, of course, every every parent wants to feed their kids healthy food and make sure that they grow up to be healthy. But that really was not my primary focus because, of course, I wanted her to be healthy, but what I really wanted to make sure was that she wasn't uh, going to be miserable around food because my mother, who was not always heavy as I was growing up, you know, her weight fluctuated a lot. Um, and so sometimes she was at a quite healthy weight, but she never had a healthy relationship with food. And she was always really unhappy around food. So, you know, you the struggle just broke my heart for my mother. And there I had this little baby, and I thought, well, I've got to make sure that she doesn't have to eat the whole bag of potato chips, you know, that she has some kind of sense of how to eat well. And that really was the whole beginning for me because in my training as a sociologist, I had this is not the area that I had focused on in in my previous work. I I I was a criminologist and so so this was a big change for me. And uh what I brought to the game though was this idea and knowledge that habits how you eat from the get-go really, really matters. And, of course, the research bears that out, that how you eat you know, in the first five years of life really sets you up on a path. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's go back with that because you have an interesting background. I was you know, reading the book in the first chapter, and you started out in criminology. How did you bridge that into what you're, you're doing now? 
you know, there are a lot of really bad jokes in 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 this transition, which I'll just avoid, you know, making them about. But they but they involve like, you know, how kids are kind of like, you know, little criminals. But, um, you know, for me, the principles of sociology are are applicable across almost anything that you want to examine in life, okay? So sociology is really concerned about many things, but mostly about how we socialize kids, how we transmit our norms and values and behaviors and beliefs. And so it really doesn't matter whether we're talking about how we teach people to be law-abiding citizens or what are the systemic things in society that prevent that, right, because it's not all about the family, it's not that different to talk about that um, in one domain or to think about that in the other domain. So for me, I became really interested in figuring this out for my family, and I knew that what I had to think about was habits, and I didn't have a very clear idea about what entailed you know, good eating habits. And one of the things I've learned over the last 10, 15 years is that most people in America can't really articulate what constitutes good eating habits. So, so that, was, that was a problem that I could see. But, but I knew that I needed to think about things like not making, making my daughter fall into the habit of overeating or things like that. So that's, that was sort of my initial focus. But what happened, of course, is that when you have a new baby, you spend a lot of time around other people who have babies, and as they grow into toddlers and they start eating table food, you're around a lot of other families that are going through the same stage. And so what happened, because I'm a sociologist and because I'm trained as an observer and and to think systematically about what I'm seeing, one of the things that I noticed is that a lot of parents who had all the best intentions and who were very well educated about nutrition and really knew what their kids ought to eat we're making a lot of mistakes all in the name of nutrition. So the classic example is what I've come to call, you know, feeding their kids the at least foods, the foods that they're not that thrilled with giving their kids like chicken nuggets or uh, heavily sweetened yogurts, but then they, they know that they need to get nutrients into their kids. So they say, well, at least these chicken nuggets have uh, protein or at least this yogurt has calcium. And I could see, because I was thinking about what the long-term trajectory was, what the habits were going to be, that you can't feed your kids one way when they're, when they're one and a half, two, two and a half, and expect them to grow up and eat a different way. So I, I met a lot of people who were feeding their kids, you know, cheese sticks three, four, five times a day. And, and you know, that's just that's too much cheese. And I knew that if you got used to eating cheese when you're two, you're going to eat a lot of cheese when you're five and 10 and 20, and, and, and that this was the long-term perspective. And so it was through this combination of like looking at my own family and what my own desires were, taking my training and seeing what, what other families were doing. And then I spent a lot of time interviewing parents and asking them why they were making the decisions that they were making and putting that all those pieces together with my understanding and reading in the popular literature about how we talk about eating in society and how that was influencing families, that I was able to have this uh, analysis that bridged from society to the family to the individual, and that's what I did, and, and that's what sociology is all about. So the bridge from my former life, you know, studying some other topic to studying this topic was just a switch in, you know, the exact thing I was looking at. But, but the tools that I used were exactly the same. Yeah. Is there an age, Dino, where we come to, because I know they say that a lot of what we, we deal with ourselves as adults, we kind of learn between the ages of seven and nine. How much of our eating habits are formed at a certain age? That's a really good question that I don't think that there's any conclusive evidence on so far in the research literature, although the working assumption is that the first five years are really crucial for setting you up on a trajectory, a path that you're going to follow throughout your life. And we all know kids who were picky, 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 and then all of a sudden changed their habits when they got older and started to eat really well and started to be very adventurous and, and exploring the world, and they became you know, gourmet chefs or something like that. 
And a lot of times we use that one case that we know of or the two cases that we know of to think that all kids will change. But the sad truth is that when you look at the data uh, now, kids, how they start out really is how they continue through their their adolescence and into their early adulthood. And so we might see children in the early years be very picky and, and then as they grow up, you know, learn to eat a few more vegetables or something like that. But their eating habits don't fundamentally shift. And it's one of the reasons, here's a good example, that I always recommend to parents that they really avoid giving their kids juice. Because looking at juice, let's say, not orange juice, the kind of, you know, juice that has a lot more benefit to it, but the kind that we give to kids, which tends to be grape juice or apple juice or or fruit punch. Um, We like to think of it, we say at least it's fruit, um, but it's really just the sugar from fruit. But from a habits perspective, uh, juice is just is teaching kids to eat a sweet, you know, to, to appreciate a sweetened beverage, to drink a sweetened beverage. And when you look at the data in terms of how kids progress in their beverage consumption through their teenage years, you can look at little kids drinking milk and juice, and by the time they're teenagers, juice and milk have fallen off their their consumption patterns, but what's entered into that? Soda, sports mm-hmm. drinks, and other sweetened beverages. So you have to think about juice as sort of like, I mean, it sounds dramatic, but kind of like a gateway drug, a gateway beverage, because it creates a habit and a taste preference for, for a certain kind of, of drink. And so we really have to take the big picture and say, how do you want your kids to eat as they grow up and feed them that way now? Yeah, it's it's astounding the the way things are because sometimes I mean I used to be like a a star a habitual Starbucks person now I don't even go in there anymore, but when I would go in there to get coffee or get a frappuccino, you would see parents in there with these kids who are four or five years old getting these extra extra large frappuccinos, and I'm like, why are you giving your child frappuccino? It seems like it's a fun drink, but when you think about it. It's not such a fun drink because the sugar content and the caffeine content. And then you have these parents who are like, I guess they're trying to be the child's friend and give them something or they're looking at it as as a treat. And your book kind of tackled this, that snacks and treats are really, they really end up backfiring on the parents. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, we really have to think about how we – how we feed snacks and treats and what the messaging is behind that. Because So here's one of the problems that parents have is that we think of meals as the nutrition zone and then when it's not the nutrition zone, so we think our kids can eat all this fun stuff or, or maybe we believe that a lot of people, I mean, this is a very dominant idea in our culture that kids' childhood is a time for us to indulge and we should be eating a lot of cookies and, and candy and stuff like that because you won't be able to eat it when you're older. I hear people say that all the time. And the problem with that, of course, is, is there, there are a lot of problems with that. But one problem is, of course, is that the pervasiveness of eating sweet-flavored things, of course, shapes our taste preferences for those sweet-flavored things. So that's one problem. But the more we have a taste preference for those foods, the more we're going to dislike the healthy food because it's not as sweet. So fruits and vegetables you know, can't really compete with those kinds of foods. But the other problem is here is that there are, there are only three habits that translate everything you need to know about nutrition into behavior. And one of them is a concept called proportion, which is really about ratios. And it's really about how, what dominates your diet. And so in the health world, if you want to eat a healthy diet, right, the, the things that should dominate our diets are fruits and vegetables and lean proteins and things like that. But if you look at the way most of us eat, the things that dominate our diets, especially when we're talking about children, are kind of those at-least foods. They're the mediocre foods or they're the downright junky foods. And so proportion isn't just about the nutrition zone meal times, right? Proportion is everything that you eat. So if we're eating a lot of junky snacks, we're making it more difficult to teach our kids to eat healthy foods at meal times. But we're so we're sort of then at mealtimes we're sort of dumbing down the food with the at least foods, and then they're eating those snacks on top of it. 
So from a proportion perspective, our kids are just eating way too, too many sort of mediocre and downright junky foods, and that's just not a healthy eating habit. Yeah, and, and going back to the uh, proportion, I wanted to get into those those three habits of how to eat. I think it's proportion, variety, and uh, moderation, was it? That's right, yep. Okay, so um, with proportion, you pulled out a segment of that which I wanted to talk about, and I think uh, one was growing foods, fun foods, and then I can't remember the, the other one, but talk a little bit about the treat you know, foods, gro- yeah, yeah, uh, growing foods and fun foods, and then I believe there was a bit of an overlap between growing foods and fun foods, and you kind of explain that in the in the <laughs> book. Yeah. So yeah, you know, here's the thing about um, thinking about whether foods are healthy or not, and is that if we if you and I were going to have a conversation and we we're going to talk about something like pretzels you know we could get into the nuances is it made with whole grains and is how much salt is there and people can have a lot of you know we can really split fine hairs here but one of the things that is just the way families operate in the real world is that they ha- we have a tendency to just say in our heads, is it healthy or is it junky? And so when kids want to eat something in our head, we go sort of, is it healthy or is it junky? And the problem with having that two-category system for organizing the world is that we tend to put a lot of things in the healthy category that aren't really healthy. And pretzels is really a prime example. So pretzels have sort of this good reputation as being healthy because they're not fried, and and really it's because they're better than potato chips for you and and I call, I call that the potato chip challenge when we think about snacks and I just want to say being better than a potato chip is a low bar <laughs> um but so what happens is we we say something like uh pretzels are are healthy and then the healthy category has got all these sort of mediocre foods in it. And so a really easy way to just organize the world is to think about really healthy foods, the ones that you know in your gut are healthy. Those we'll call growing foods. You can call them whatever you want. The ones that you know are junky, the things like the cookies and the ice cream and the candy, we can put them in the treat category or the junk category. And the middle category, I called them fun foods, but you can call them whatever you want. They're the ones that are actually tripping parents up. That's where all the at least foods are. Those are the ones that if we're doing the healthy junky split, go with the healthy foods, but they're not so much. They're not that healthy. And from a habits perspective, all those foods in the middle category are shaping our kids' taste preferences towards the junky food. And food manufacturers really know this. So here's a good example if you think about things like um, a breakfast bar or something where a manufacturer uses the kind of lingo that says, this is tasty enough that your kids will eat it, uh, but it's got enough health, healthy stuff in it that you'll feel good as the mom. But this is where, like, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. So if it looks and acts like a junky food in your kid's uh, experience of the food, and, and uh, very heavily sweetened yogurt is a good example of that, it, that feels to kids like pudding. Or if you put it in the refrig- freezer, it can, it can feel to kids like ice cream. So if it feels and looks like that and you experience it like that, it's pushing our kids' taste preferences towards the junk. So when we're figuring out what our kids need to eat in the course of the day, if we're thinking not only how to ha- how to feed them a healthy diet today, but how to shape their taste preferences so that they'll try to eat healthy foods that when we ask them to try them, um, we need to be mindful of the experience in terms of what it seems like to them. So a breakfast bar or carnation instant breakfast or things that are like that. The frappuccino that you're talking about is a good example. I mean, people can make the argument, well, it's got milk and, you know, it can be healthy. But but these things are heavily pushing our kids towards the junky category. So from a proportion perspective, we want to start shifting our kids towards the healthier foods. First of all, we have to start feeding the healthier foods. But second of all, we have to think about what we're doing with their taste preferences. And so we need to to sort of move away from the the heavily uh, sweetened things or the heavily crunchy things, you know, or the heavily sort of things that are like toast or like cheese. I mean, kids eat versions of pizza. Some kids eat pizza three, four times a day, not real pizza, but they eat a grilled cheese sandwich, they eat a quesadilla, they eat cheese and crackers, they eat pizza, and that might be what they eat all day long. Those are 
those are taste and experience equivalents. And that's one of the problems that parents have when they come along and say, oh, here's some cauliflower, you want to try it. It's nothing like that. So we have to remember that taste preferences are formed much more than they're found. Most parents think that they have to go discover what their kids like, but what we feed them is influencing what they like. And you only have to remember that Mexican kids, kids eat Mexican food and Indian kids eat Indian food and our kids eat hot dogs to know that that's true. Yeah, my cousin posted a, a picture on Facebook, um, and she has a little boy. He's not little now. He's 11. But she posted a picture of him eating pizza and coffee and drinking coffee. I'm like, where did you develop this <laughs> this habit? It was, I mean, it was funny, but it was also disturbing to me that, you know, he's eating pizza and uh, drinking coffee. In your book, you talk a little bit about, and I, I think that, when you look at it, a lot of our tastes are shaped when we're children because a lot of the um, the foods are geared towards fat, which fat now, you know, people used to vilify fat, but fat is the saturated fats are getting a comeback, and everybody's not believing that saturated fats are bad for them. But a lot of our the snacks and the, the things that are geared toward kids are geared toward three areas, three general areas, that's fat, sugar, and salt. And you were talking about that in the book and how everything, all of these snacks and, and these different things are are geared to that. I wanted you to, to kind of expand on that a little bit. Well, you know, the research has really shown that food manufacturers have figured out what's called, excuse me, what's called the bliss point. It's mm -hmm. just the right amount of sugar, salt, and fat that will light up all of the pleasure centers in our brain. And for some people... Um, it, it, this is a, pl a pleasure a center that is being lit up in, in akin to like a, like a drug addiction. So this is true for adults too. So it's one of the reasons why we can't stop eating all those potato chips or something like that because, you know, the sugar and the salt are very pleasant for us and the fat has like this mouthfeel, but it also conveys the intensity of the sugar or the salt. And so food manufacturers have figured out how to, you know, make us happy. And children's foods, so the so-called child-friendly foods, tend to just be much more filled with, you know, sugar, salt, and fat than food that you might, A, cook yourself, or B, things that we just think of as regular food as opposed to child-friendly food. And it's just a myth. It's just a big myth that is just really wrecking <laughs> family life and Americans' eating habits that children need different food from adults. And it's just simply not true. So there are recommendations that before the age of two, children do need to eat full-fat foods. You don't want to have a young child on a low-fat diet because they need the, the healthy fat for brain development. But certainly by the time they're two years old, there's actually no reason why they can't eat the exact same foods that adults are eating with a couple of exceptions, like you wouldn't want to give a young child a very spicy dish, but that doesn't mean that they can't have food that has lots of flavor in it. So there's no reason why kids can't eat garlic and thyme and, and, you know, and lemon and all sorts of interesting flavors. Um, so they, they just can't have the spicy stuff. And also we need to make sure that the food – is easy to swallow. So if you're eating meat, it might need to be a little bit moister or something like that. But there's no reason that they can't eat exactly the same food that adults eat. And even prior to age two, there's no reason why they can't eat real food. So this idea that children need bland and boring food is, is just, it's wrong. And when you think about the thing that I just said about sugar, salt, and fat, kids when we feed them those child-friendly foods like the chicken nuggets or the pizza, those are foods that are not actually bland. They're intensely sweet or intensely salty. And one thing that has become clear to researchers is that one reason why children reject the healthy food or the fruits and vegetables is because they're actually seeking out what's called a flavor hit. They're looking for that intense flavor that they're not finding in so-called regular food. 
So I, I just think that we, we need to start talking much more realistically about the truth about what it means to feed children and that there's no harm in, in, giving, in giving children regular food. And just as, a, as an aside, I, I just want to say that there used to be these recommendations about keeping young children away from potentially allergenic foods, and not only was that sort of a um, misguided direction because most of the foods that young children eat are not highly allergenic, right, but it made parents and doctors scared for kids to experiment with foods. But now the recommendations are that, that by withholding potentially allergenic foods, we may be creating and exacerbating the allergy problem in America. And so now the recommendations are not to withhold those foods at all. So there really is no reason why we shouldn't start feeding children from the very beginning the way we want them to continue. Yeah. And one of the surprising things about your book is that reading the book, I'm like, okay, She's saying some good things. Dina is saying some good things. But it surprised <laughs> I'm glad you me. thought so. Because <laughs> you surprised me that you weren't totally against, let's say, candy or donuts. You said that you, you can use them. Explain your rationalization <laughs> for actually letting kids have candy. And the second part of that question is pretty loaded. But is it better to go towards the organic candy and organic cookies and donuts or just let them do the, the conventional thing? <laughs> okay. So here's the thing. Um, first of all, if you think about the principle of proportion, which is we want to eat mostly really healthy foods, what that also means is is that there's a place in the diet for everything. It's just where's that place? So there is room in the diet for candy and I know this horrifies most people. There's even room in the diet for something like a Pop-Tart. But the question is how, where, you know, and how often and, and how much of it can you eat? And so that's the real thing that we need to teach our children because when we teach them that they ought not to eat candy or they ought not to eat donuts or those things that are bad, then it's so clear that the research shows that we make those foods much more desirable. And this is not just for kids, if you think about it. In America, there's just no question that we all deep down believe, and there's research that backs this up, we all deep down believe that junky food tastes better than healthy food. Even if you love healthy food like I do, the research shows that subconsciously you think that junky food tastes better. <laughs> and we teach kids that very early on by bribing them to eat their broccoli by telling them if they eat their broccoli they can can have a brownie and you've never heard a parent ever do it in the reverse like oh you can have your brownie if you eat your broccoli <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> right and that's yeah. because we think well you need to have an incentive to eat your broccoli but the brownie is so good you're going to want to eat it anyway so Anytime we label the food as, as bad, we're really teaching our kids that that's really good. You know, it becomes sort of reverse. And, and then if we say they can't have it, it becomes the forbidden fruit. And so then, they're, you know, it just creates all this crazy, craziness around, around sweets and treats. So the message is not this is bad for you, but the message is that we only eat this stuff um, in proportion. So you can have a sweet every day. Why not? As, but you have to eat, the other stuff has to be really healthy. And the reason parents get crazy about this is because they know deep down that their kids aren't really eating the healthy stuff. They're just eating the mediocre stuff. And so if you add the junk on top of the mediocre stuff, then they're just really eating a bad diet. So if we focused on really improving our kids' diets on the healthy end, on the high end, then we wouldn't feel so bad about the low end, and that could be snuck in. And, and not snuck in like sneaking, but just sort of put it in the right way. And I do want to say that the key to teaching kids this habit of proportion is to actually give them specific guidelines that you can figure out yourself based on your family, but you need to say to your kids, like, you can have one 
treat a day or you can have two small treats a day or whatever or once every other day or whatever it is that your family decides and then you have to talk about what constitutes a sweet or treat and then kids learn actually how to make decisions because what happens is is that they just say can I have this can I have this can I have this and parents say yes or no based on some rationale that the kids don't understand and so for the kids this feels like an arbitrary decision and then they don't learn how to make those decisions themselves Instead, they just hear the message that that food is desirable, but you can't have it. And so that's one of the things that causes all of the, the fighting that parents experience over over sweets and treats. Yeah, I think there's an awful lot of guilt, too, that comes in when you tell kids, you can't have donuts, you can't have candy. It's like, who didn't grow up with donuts and candy when they were a kid? I grew up with them. but And then as adults, we take that guilt into it. I talk to people all the time they're like I should I know I shouldn't be eating this and they're all guilty around the food and I'm like why if you if you know you know you're eating healthy and you eat one thing that's not all that good for you don't freaking worry about it you know but exactly it's, it's, and the other thing is is like what a shame when you're eating that donut you should love every bite of it and you should feel good about eating that donut. I mean, <laughs> that's really truly my position and all the science bears it out. And so and this brings up the the question that you asked as part of the last one about whether or not it's better to have organic things, you know, should you eat organic donuts or should you make your own pop tarts at home and 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 all of those kinds of questions. And here's the, here's the real answer, which is, um, sure, some of those foods are going to be better for you if you eat the organic version or the homemade version or something like that. However, there's this big caveat, which is to say that when people think that what they're eating is healthy, like when they think they're eating healthy junk, <laughs> they eat more of it. And so if you think that, um, the cookie is, and I hear this from parents all the time, uh, especially <laughs> I have this one blog post on my blog where I, I talk about the difference between muffins and donuts. And I, I make the argument that if you feed your kids muffins, you should it would be better to feed them donuts. And the reason is for m- on many dimensions the donut can be healthier, first of all, because it tends to be a little bit smaller. But even if it's if it, if it's worse for you, there's not a parent in the world that tells their kids that the donut is healthy. But we tell our kids all the time that the muffin is healthy. Um, and and a lot of parents objected to that blog post, and I get a lot of pushback from it. And what people do is they write their recipes to me, and they say, "But I put flaxseed in mine, or I use applesauce instead of sugar, or or whatever they say." And the problem with that, with that way of thinking, that with that rationale, is that it encourages us to eat more of that thing than we might otherwise. So if we thought that muffins were junky, we would not give them to our kids every single morning for breakfast. Yeah, is that an example? Because I was going to ask you this, and you kind of gave me a, a great segue into it. Is that an example of the health? Of, you mentioned healthified foods in there. <laughs> Yes. Is that a yeah example of that? Like yes. Parents? Yes. Health, I, healthifying foods, making your own homemade pizza. Yes, of course, homemade pizza is going to be healthier than the greasy pizza that you buy down the pizza shop um, on the corner. On the other hand, if you make healthy pizza every night for dinner, and I know families that do that, so it's not the most ludicrous thing in the world, what they're doing is teaching their kids a pizza-eating habit. and And no matter what you say, Eating pizza every night for dinner is not as healthy as eating other things for dinner. And so eating pizza, and not to mention that your kids will grow up and they'll get their pizza from the shop down the street because they're not going to make their own healthy pizza or their own healthy uh, muffins or whatever. Um, The habit is the habit. So even when a food has been so-called healthified, where the ingredients are better for you, you still need to put it into your diet in the proportion or the ratio that makes sense. So um, if it's a cookie, it doesn't matter how you've made it, it's a cookie. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, um, I had some flashbacks. I, my sister's 37 <laughs> now, but I remember when she was two, three years old, and reading your book kind of made me visualize her sitting in her high chair at the dinner table. And there was a, a time 
when my sister was around, I think between the ages of two to three, and she would not eat anything. And my mom tried everything with her. And Mm -hmm. everything outside of just opening her mouth with a a vice grip and pouring the food down there. And Mm -hmm. um, some of the personalities that you described in the book, I know my mom went through every one of them. I think one of them was the hunger. Uh, One was the comforter, nurturer. Mm -hmm. I think my mom went through the whole (laughs) gamut of these. But talk about maybe you work with people a lot. Talk about the top three that you see that people, the top three personalities of parents that are trying to get their kids to eat healthy foods and get their kids to eat vegetables and fruits. Yeah, so, you know, that's the thing to remember is that we bring ourselves into this feeding dynamic. And um, a lot of times when parents think about what they're bringing into the feeding dynamic, they think, oh, their own eating habits are are what matters. But it's really um, how you feed your kid that matters. And so the number one thing that people bring into this relationship is their fear that their kids will be hungry. And so we all have it. And it's just, it's like a continuum where some people don't have that much of it and some people are really gripped and, you know, scared to death that their kids will be hungry. But that's the number one thing. And so that's how parents end up saying, but if I were to cook this kind of food, he wouldn't eat it or she wouldn't eat it, and then she would be hungry. And so, therefore, I have to give her the food that she wants. So that that is a that's a really big deal and what i tell parents and there are all sorts of other ones like parents are afraid of um having a lot of conflict they want there to be a lot of peace in the house or they really are afraid that their kids won't have enough nutrients so when we get gripped by the fear of those problems occurring it really handicaps us in terms of the kinds of techniques that we're willing to use so A lot of doctors, for instance, will tell parents, well, just put the food on the table that you want your kid to eat and don't offer the other stuff, and eventually he'll eat it. But if you're afraid that your child will be hungry, it's almost impossible to implement that solution. It is true that most kids, if if you were really, really strict, I give you food three times a day, I put it on the table, eat it or don't eat it, and, you know, see you later, if it's true that with very, very, very few exceptions, kids would get with the program after a couple days or a week. But most parents can't fall through with that because they see their kids being, being stubborn and being hungry, and then they start to interpret all the problems that their kids are having, temper tantrums and everything, as being related to hunger, hunger, and then they're, they're just, they worry that kids won't sleep through the night or their kids actually stop sleeping through the night. And then parents capitulate and then give their kids whatever it is that the kids want to eat. And the problem with that dynamic is that, of course, it teaches children the very opposite that we want them to learn, which is if you hold out, you'll get your way. But... My larger point is to say this, which is that if there's a solution that knocks up against your fears, so when the doctor says just put the food down, if we're afraid our kids are going to be hungry and we can't implement it, we have to come up with a different strategy because we need to be able as parents to be consistent with how we teach our kids the lessons. And that's the most important thing that I really want to stress here, which is this is really about parenting more than it is about feeding. So when we think about feeding, we think about knowing what food to cook, knowing how to cook it, and putting it on the table. But that's the easy part of this. The hard part of this is asking ourselves what is it that our children need to learn in order to become good eaters. So we do that in other environments. We ask ourselves what it takes to teach our kids to sleep through the night or what is it we need to do to teach them to walk or to put on their clothes. And if we're doing something that doesn't seem to be working, we we go back to the drawing board and say, well, there must be a different way of teaching this lesson. But when it comes to eating, when it doesn't work, we say, well, I've got to go find another recipe or I've got to find a better way to put the food on the table. But really what we need to do is think about what is it that will teach our kids to eat right. And so in the example that I gave where 
the parent takes the doctor's advice and and just puts the food down and and you know sticks it out for as long as she can but then she can't she capitulates we need to say well what was she trying to teach her kid well she was trying to teach her kid that this is the food and you need to eat it but what did she really teach her kid she taught her kid to hold out and then you get your way so then how do we reverse that and actually teach the child the right lesson and not bump up against mom's insecurities or or worries and troubles. And that's the real key here. And once parents start to look at their kids and say, what is it you need to learn? Okay, you need to learn how to um, be more adventurous as an eater. Okay, well, what do I need to teach you to do that? Well, the first thing I might need to teach you is that it's safe to be around new foods because we've been fighting about this for so long that when you come to the table, you're really nervous. And so, okay, so how do I teach you to be safe? Okay, so you know, you see what I'm saying? I'm sort of breaking yeah. down the lessons, and, mm-hmm. and that is the answer. Yeah. getting We went over proportion. Um, there was a moderation, and I wanted to talk about that the, pertaining to the three habits. Moderation, going through the book, and reading this, and I remember reading that example. I think it was a father and a daughter, and the father wanted to give the child um, some ice cream, and you suggested that the father give the child the ice cream and let her put her own chocolate chips, and the father was so crazy. And I'm like, where is she going with this? Where is she going with this? But talk about that because children can self-govern themselves. And it's, it, it was amazing to, to, to find out that they, they can do that. But I wanted to talk about that. I think that was a study, but it was something that you also uh, just suggested to the father to do, and it turned out really well. We need to, yeah, I mean, well, let me just say, so the three habits are proportion, variety, and moderation, and and variety is is pretty obvious, you know, it just means eating different foods from day to day, and I just want to sort of throw out there that that one of the things that that, uh, puts parents off course when they think about variety is they think that variety means new foods, and it just sort of really means different, and so we just need to think about how to mix up what we feed our kids from day to day, and that will teach the lesson of variety. Moderation, though, you know, that's that's a biggie because moderation is really about eating the right amount of food. And so that really means eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full. But it also means not eating for the wrong reasons, right, because if we're eating, we don't want to eat because you're bored, sad, or lonely because presumably those are times when you're not eating because you're hungry. So we do need to be mindful about teaching our kids to eat for emotional reasons. Most of us do that without thinking about it when we give our kids cookies to distract them, um, you know, when they when they when they fall and have a boo-boo or when they go to the doctor's office and get a shot and we give them a uh, lollipop. Um so so that's its own sort of you know, ball of wax. But but the other issue, you know, is the one that you brought up, which is letting children figure out how much they should eat of any given food. And there's a lot more to be said about this, but the more we try to control kids about what they do, the the more they're going to push back and learn that this is a controlling environment. So we do have to have a way in which we let children experiment about how much they're going to eat. And so um so yeah, I mean if I you know the the sort of chocolate chips a lot of times I tell parents if you want to teach your kids to eat plain yogurt for instance, one way to do that is with a a bowl of uh you know a bowl of plain yogurt and a bowl of chocolate chips and say put as many of these chips in in the yogurt as you want and 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 uh, kids never put in as much as parents fear, and they certainly never put as much sugar in as what you get in the prepackaged version. But the reason to do this is really in, in the sort of learning about food more than learning about moderation because when your child puts those chocolate chips into plain yogurt, not every spoonful is going to taste exactly the same and that's one of the problems with using packaged foods and teaching kids about what real food tastes like because every spoonful out of uh, of a yogurt a prepackaged yogurt is going to taste exactly the same but when you mix it up yourself some of those spoonfuls will taste like the yogurt and some of them will taste like the yogurt with the chips and when you're adding in the chips the good thing is is that the next time you can add in 
sprinkles and the next time you can add in granola and the next time you can add in nuts and the next time you can add in raisins and by the time you finish this experiment you have broadened your child's palate but just using yogurt yeah speaking about the last concept or last habit variety and this was amazing to me as well because i've seen a lot of parents do this um they will give their child something one time and they'll say oh she doesn't like that or he doesn't like that. <laughs> and then that food is for is on the forbidden list. They never put it in front of the child again. Talk about how many times does a child need to taste a food before they develop an opinion if they do not like the food or not. Yeah, so let me just say the research, you know, comes up with different numbers. So sometimes it's you need to be exposed to something six times and sometimes it's you need to be exposed to it 14 times. And now the research is becoming a little bit more nuanced, saying that there are some foods that are easier to learn to like and other foods that are more difficult. So that's why the number varies. But as far as parents are concerned, that number might as well be a million because most parents give up after five exposures. But the reason that we give up, let me just say there's two things that, that, that we need to think about. The reason we give up is because we are mixing up the idea of tasting a new food with eating it. So taste, in those research studies, those, those kids are not being asked to eat a whole bowl of berries. They're being asked to taste half of one or something like that. And so parents think that they're giving their permission their kids' permission to taste and not eat when they say, just try it, and if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. But that statement heard through a child's eyes, ears, <laughs> is um, if I do like it, I will have to eat it. Now, as an adult, we think that if you like it, you'll want to eat it, but that's just not true with children. And there are plenty of reasons why a child might like something but not might not want to eat it. And some of it is as simple as they might not feel like it or they might want to be razzing their parents. But the but the but the more frequent answer is because they're invested in the control struggle and not letting you win. So we need to teach children to taste a pea sized sample of a food as the whole goal. And so maybe that tasting has to happen not at the dinner table until kids become good tasters. Once you have the kind of kid who can go from looking at something to tasting it to eating it, then by all means we can expect our kids to eat new foods at the dinner table. But when we're teaching them to be good tasters, that's a, that's a whole different process. And the other thing that kind of messes that up is that when kids say they don't like it, we believe them. Mm-hmm. But kids under five certainly don't have what's called stable taste preferences. They don't really know what they like or don't like, but they do have stable language. And so they use the language as a way of knowing that that's a legal way to get out of eating. Because if they said what they were really thinking, for instance, if they saw the food and said, oh, that looks gross, or, oh, oh, really, we're having pea soup for dinner, I was really hoping for pasta, parents would get all, you know, understandably annoyed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we have taught children that the legal way out is to say, I don't like it. And, And we do that by saying, just taste it, and if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. That's the only legal out. So for parents, what I would say is we need to separate tasting from eating, really, truly just exploring food. We need to stop asking kids if they like it, but to just tell us about it. Oh, taste this and tell me if you think it's crunchy, or taste this and tell me if you think it's sweet. Most kids don't even know those words, like what is salty or what is sweet or what is garlicky, but they need to learn it, right, by by thinking about it. Um, and helping them feel comfortable with the experience of, of different foods because that's what makes kids feel confident and comfortable becoming adventurous. Yeah. It was so funny the way you, you flipped this back on the parents because I think you in the book you said you did a seminar and you had some something in a jar and, <laughs> yes. and you asked you like come up here and taste that and none of the parents would taste it, but it's always that one who will taste something. And that well, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, it's always that one person who will go and taste something when nobody else will do it. I well, call it you know, and just like with kids, there are kids who are naturally adventurous eaters, but those kids tend to be naturally adventurous 
in life, too. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the kids who are the most reluctant to try new foods, they're probably also reluctant to try new routines and, and, and new games and new clothes, and they tend to be more, you know, more... Um, particular about how they live their lives and so these we can we can help those kinds of children become more accustomed with new foods just by expanding other kinds of new and pointing out when they do do new things and and getting them more comfortable with that idea that'll go a long way when it comes to eating as well yeah, I call those people who will try anything guineas, as in guinea pigs. So, <laughs> you know, years and years ago, this is dating myself. There was a commercial where you know Mikey would eat everything, and it was yeah. like a, it was like a, that. yeah, right. So they're the Mikey kids. <laughs> yeah. Last question for you, Dina, um, mm-hmm. is um, something I thought really cool, just because I'm a football fan, but. Um, you had a concept in here called eating zones. Explain eating yep. zones, how that will actually help your child, and that will be the last question for me. Okay. So, you know, one of the things that's important for children is to learn some structure that they can count on about lots of different things, including when food is available and when food will not be available. So a lot of times kids come to the dinner table, they're not so hungry, and that's one of the reasons why they're not going to eat the food that you put in front of them, and that's because they've been grazing all day. So one of the things that we need to think about is when food should be available and when it's not, and when it is, that's what I call an eating zone. So we can do this in our heads. It doesn't have to be like cast in stone exactly what time it is, but you know, if you know that on the regular day breakfast is somewhere between 7 and 8, Mm-hmm. Then you serve it once between 7 and 8. And if your child says that he or she is not hungry and doesn't want to eat, we need to, instead of trying to pressure them to eat, which is teaching them that we don't trust them to know their own stomach, right? Instead of doing that, we just sort of have to say to ourselves, okay, and we need to say out loud, well, there's no more food until either snack time or lunch time or whatever it is going to be in your life. And let our kids get hungry. Now, of course, if you are a hunger avoider, that can be a problem. But it helps to reframe this, to know that kids need they, – they can't ever um, learn to eat to, to um, solve the hunger problem if they don't ever feel hungry, right? You're going to get hungry, parents say to their kids, but if we never let them get hungry, they don't believe us. That it's not really a bad thing to be hungry. It's actually a good thing to learn that you can survive – temporary hunger. I mean, we're not talking about true starvation. And also that building an appetite is the right way to come to a meal. So having times when you cannot eat are just as good for kids as having times when they can eat. Yeah, that's that's big because a lot of kids just eat, eat, eat. Every time I see some kids, they have goldfish and And what we're teaching them is that every time you have a pang of hunger, you ought to eat. When in real life, you know, the healthy way is to say, like, I'm I'm hungry, but I'll be okay, and in in a half an hour I'm going to really enjoy my meal. Yeah. Is there anything you wanted to add? Because I had about 40 questions, and I didn't get to (laughs) half questions. And the book, I mean, I cannot say enough about the book. I don't have any children, but I uh, you know, talk to people who have kids, and this always seems to come. I can't get them to eat any vegetables. I can't get them to eat this. And the book is has a lot of great strategies in there, and it also kind of explains the behavior or the mindset of why kids don't don't eat. It seems like the more we push on them, the more they're going to push back, and then nothing gets solved. But it's it's a great book, uh, and um, I really enjoyed uh, reading it. Is there anything else you wanted to add before before I let you go? No, I just I just think that parents really need to believe that if they change their mindset from thinking about nutrition to thinking about how they can teach their children behaviors, lifelong eating habits, it just changes everything. And then the solutions appear and and it is it is something that that parents can really change and and family life can settle down and it's not a struggle from now until your kids leave home. <laughs> Yeah, it's so funny that um, 
I always go back to my family. I have a cousin who never ate vegetables when he was a kid, and guess what he's not doing now? And he's 45 years old. That's <laughs> <laughs> still not eating vegetables. So now I'm going to blame his mom. But um, <laughs> it, it's not about the broccoli. It's available on Amazon. And I think I said your website at the beginning in the introduction, but give us your website one more time, Dina. My website is, is, is called itsnotaboutnutrition.com. And I have a lot of free advice on there, um, articles, over 300 articles that parents uh, can look at, which address all of the topics and more that we've discussed today. And I also do free 30-minute consultations, which parents can sign up for on my website. Great. Dana Rose, thank you for being on. I really enjoyed the interview. (laughs) Thank you, Darren. It was my pleasure. And I still won't hold it against you that you went to Duke. (laughs) (laughs) thank you have a great evening dina thanks okay bye-bye all right great show um we didn't even get over we kind of skimmed the booking and got to the three habits there's a lot of great studies in there a lot of great things uh within research and, and changing the your mindset as a parent and also the child's mindset it kind of blew my mind that you know kids need to to, to uh, taste food a certain amount of times before they say that they don't like it. And a lot of us as adults are still saying that we don't like certain things and we are, uh, you know, adults now. And these some some of these habits were with us since kids. So great show tonight. Um, really enjoyed having Dina on Wednesday night. Uh, we got one day for me to, to rest up and prepare, and then I'll have Reed Davis. Reed Davis is the founder of the Functional Diagnostic Nutrition uh, Plan, and uh, we'll be speaking with Reed. So Wednesday, same fat time, same fat channel, perfectly healthy and tone radio show. Darren McDuffie, peace and love, y'all. Good night. <laughs>